Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, episode number 104. Our guest today came to me when I was referred to his book on one of my neuro coaching training calls with Mark Robert Waldman from episode number 30, when I asked a question that was sent to me from a close friend from the UK on dreams. Mark Waldman told me that he was anxiously awaiting the new book, When Brains Dream, exploring the science and mystery of sleep. And I immediately looked up the book and contacted the author, Antonio Zadra, to appear on our podcast. He agreed, and the rest is history. Before I get to the interview, I want to give you a bit more background information on this book and the authors and what you can expect before picking it up. I've got to say that what I expected from this book continually changed as I began to read it, and it took me deeper and deeper into the mysterious world of our dreams. Antonio Zadra and Robert Stick Gold bring together state-of-the-art neuroscientific ideas and findings to propose a new and innovative model of dream function called Next Up, which is network exploration to understand possibilities. By detailing this model's workings, they help readers understand key features of several types of dreams from prophetic dreams to nightmares and lucid dreams. When Brain's Dream reveals recent discoveries about the sleeping brain and the many ways in which dreams are psychologically and neurologically meaningful experiences. The book explores a host of dream-related disorders and explains how dreams can facilitate creativity and be a source of personal insight. Let's hear what Tony has to say about the book. Welcome, Tony. Thank you so much for agreeing to share more about your new book, When Brains Dream, today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I want to get straight into these questions because I've got a lot of them. I mentioned to you that I've been writing down my dreams since the late 90s and it was off and on. And it started when the speaker who I interviewed on episode 66, Bob Proctor, that I worked for back in the late 90s, he said, you know, write down your dreams. You can gain a lot of personal insight from them. But you taught me a valuable lesson that we cannot interpret other people's dreams, only our own. Can you share why this is important for all of us to understand and why we probably have to like stop that urge to ask, what does this dream mean and what should we be asking instead? Okay. Uh, Well, that's an excellent question. First of all, let's say, you know, people can certainly help others better understand their dreams. But um, what often happens is that this process takes place without any input from the dreamer. And so the one analogy I like to often make is that dreams are created by the dreamer, no one else. And so it's like a work of art that is created by an artist. But artists don't go around with their work of art and say, oh, take a look at this, whether it's a sculpture or a painting, and can you please tell me what it means? And so no no one does that. And so it's particular that we do that with our dreams. It also implies that dreams have a unique singular meaning. 
as if I was telling you, oh, I heard this sentence in Japanese. Can you tell me what it means in English? So you, as if you could just have a dictionary and translate things. And dreams, much like work of arts, are certainly or can be meaningful, but they are, hold multiple meanings. And so there is no one unique meaning to dreams, but they can mean different things, much like artworks will mean different things to different people. So I think there's at least two important things. One is to keep in mind that you need the input of the dreamer if he or she is to better understand the possible significance of their dreams. Again, because it's their dream, right? If you dream of water, well, it, it, it really, I need to know, well, did you just have a flooding? Do you like swimming? Do you, are you scared of water? Do you know how to swim? Uh, you know, there's... Things are meaningful, but why they're meaningful to us will vary from one person to the, to the next. And the other one, again, is that um, dreams, like many things, like films and novels, and again, are open to multiple meanings. They touch people in different ways. People uh, grasp onto different elements of them and different parts of them speak to them. For dreams, sometimes it's the content, the dialogue, the emotions, the settings, or combinations of all this. Well, it was powerful when you walked through two of my dreams with me, because in the past I've had a dream and I just go to Google to these sources and say, you know, what does this mean? And so I was way off track. And then when you asked me a couple of questions, the meaning of those two dreams was very obvious to me and had nothing to do with what I first thought. So for somebody that is like me that might have some dreams that they wonder about, how would, without a session with you, come to the same realization of what their dreams could mean? Uh, well, there's definitely, first of all, people aren't necessarily aware of this, but there's actually a fair amount of research that's been done on different ways of approaching dream material. What kinds of questions can we ask ourselves about our own dreams that are most likely to lead to insights about ourselves? And this is true whether we're working with dreams in a broader context of therapy, but also on our own for self-exploration. And so, for instance, uh, in our, our book, we present a series of questions that people should be asking themselves about their dreams. And this at least should help them uh, put them on a, a better path or a path that's most likely to give them some satisfying answers. And so the questions often touch the themes that we experience in our dreams, the characters who are there, who do they remind us of, um, the emotions we feel in the dreams, when did we last feel this way, uh, the settings and so on. So you can explore these various facets of your dreams by just asking yourself these questions. There's ways of also trying to link the content of your dreams with more recent experiences or concerns that you've had. And again, that might uh, help you better understand why did your brain, your sleeping mind uh, choose uh, these objects, these people, these interactions to maybe represent or embody a current concern that you have. And would that be your next stop, your network exploration to understand possibilities? Is that within yeah. that chapter? Well, that ne next step is a neuroscientifically based model that tries to explain why we dream. 
And the, if we go into more the biological or adaptive function of dreams, dreams probably execute their functions as they are happening. And the reason we believe that is that very few people remember their dreams. And even those who remember their dreams almost every morning, which is a minority, uh, remember only a small fraction of the dreams that we experience all night long. And some people go through their entire lives without ever remembering their dreams. And so if we had to remember them, let alone work on them for them to have a function, then it'd be such a colossal waste of time because for entire segments of the population, dreams have no function. You know, young babies spend a lot of time in REM sleep and presumably dreaming. They probably have very little recall of those experiences. And so, it makes a lot more sense to believe that dreams execute their functions as they are happening. That being said, that does not preclude the idea that you can certainly use the dreams that you remember to better understand something, including yourself, your concerns, as a source of creativity, um, as a source for self-exploration. Uh, so that is quite something else. But next up, by detailing how we think the brain goes about uh, picking salient concerns from your daytime, how it goes about trying to link them to past experiences, gives you maybe a better sense of how dreams are built and why they are built that way. Uh, but those are sort of separate questions from uh, what kind of questions should be asking yourself if you want to better understand your dreams. Got it. And I know that how important this part is my next question here, because you covered a whole chapter on Freud. Um, mm -hmm. But what about uh, the powerful scientific and clinical work that was being done on dreams way before Freud? Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, many textbooks or introductory books on sleep and dreams, when they start talking about dreams, uh, usually begin with one author, with Freud, as if nothing had really been done. Or they might have a sentence or two about, you know, dreams have always fascinated humankind or since Aristotle. Uh, and then they jump to Freud. But in the, I'd say about 50 or 60 years before Freud's interpretation of dreams that came out in 1899, there were many uh, scientists working actively to try to understand the how and why of dreams and conducting really clever, innovative experiments at the time. Um, and so, for instance, some people were trying to explore how do different external stimuli, smells that we are exposed to, if someone holds uh, a source of heat close to our feet while we are sleeping, or someone comes and tickles our nose, are these sensations incorporated in your dreams? And if so, how? You know, how are they integrated in the dream narrative? Now, keep in mind, people were investigating this back in uh, like 1850, right? So this is, um, you know, over 150 years ago. And these are the kinds of experiments, by the way, that modern-day scientists started doing in the sleep lab after REM sleep was discovered uh, in the mid 1950 50. So 100 years later, the first kinds of experiments done in the lab were very similar to what people were trying to do much before Freud. Other examples, the idea of some people use these first um, 
physiological devices that measured a breathing rates during, uh, well, it can be during the daytime, but here was during people's sleep. And for instance, people had already figured out, well, the most vivid dreams tend to occur in the latter half of the night or closer to the morning awakening, which we know today is true. And they also uh, figured out, well, the most vivid dreams tend to occur when our breathing rhythms are irregular. And that we know today is also true. Other people were already trying to use questionnaires to systematically evaluate um, the content of people's dreams. They were looking at how different ways of waking people up can influence dream recall. How quickly do our memories of dreams uh, fade? And so, again, there was all this fascinating work, including uh, people who were trying to influence the content of their dreams by using sensory conditioning. And this is quite mind-boggling as well, especially when we think that this was being done such a long time ago. So um, one gentleman by the name of Hervé Saint-Denis, in a fascinating book he wrote in 1867 called Dreams and How to Guide Them, uh, one of his many experiments that he did is every time he traveled in France, when he'd be in a particular area or a town, he would buy a perfume and he would smell that perfume every day as he traveled in that village or that town. And he did that everywhere he traveled. So he'd have one perfume always associated with a particular region or village um, in France. Then he'd had an assistant pick one of these perfumes on a night that he doesn't know, he doesn't know which perfume, and hold a few droplets under his nose while he slept. And the idea was, because you've associated perfumes with specific smells with specific regions, could that influence your dreams? And the answer was yes. When he took a perfume that was associated with town A, he would be more likely to dream about town A. So he might not even incorporate the smell in his dream, but the memories associated with that smell would influence his dream. And then he would even try to combine um, two perfumes to see would there be elements from both towns that would occur in his dream. So many really fascinating studies on how does our mind go about building our dreams and how can we influence this? So all of this work was going on much before uh, Freud and many of the modern approaches, clinical and otherwise, to the study of dreams really find their roots much more in these early explorers of dream than they do with uh, Freudian dream theory, which of course had a huge impact, but that really changed the focus from um, the why and how in dreams and more towards, well, what does this one dream mean? And the idea, again, that there is a singular meaning and that so-called dream experts like myself uh, could infer what dreams mean without knowing very little or nothing from the person, actually, in many ways, imposing my views and my interpretations on you, even though they don't resonate um, with you. And so the focus change and more empirical or science-driven research uh, about dreams was sort of sidelined, unfortunately, for the, you know, a good 50 years after Freud. But it's fascinating, again, like I was saying, that uh, all these innovative methodologies to try to better understand dreams, where they come from, how they are molded, uh, what kind of um, 
mental faculties are absent or continue in dreams. So people are going, well, we can see and we can hear things, but our logic is off, our judgment is off. We don't really have critical thinking, why? And one person, Alfred Murray, already in 1860 proposed that, well, maybe it's because in sleep, different areas of our brain are deactivated, which we know today is exactly the reason we don't have those abilities. Part of the frontal regions of the brain, which are responsible for reasoning, judgment, planning, are generally deactivated in REM sleep. And so in our dreams, well, we're not very critical. There's all kinds of unusual, bizarre things that happen, uh, but we believe them to be real and we don't really notice how unusual or bizarre they are until after we wake up. It's so true. And dreams do feel so real, don't they? When you wake up and these weird things that have happened to you, like big tidal waves, you wake up and you're looking for the the ocean drops, it's just crazy. Oh, absolutely. They feel very real while we are immersed in them. And there's actually an English physician who once uh, said the following line that I always liked, is, which is, dreams feel real uh, while we are in them. Can we say more about life? Wow, that is powerful. And I didn't even ask you, you've been interested in dreams since you were a young boy, weren't you? Where did this all start for you to go and become a dream I, expert? Um, well, this might sound corny, but the truth of the matter is I became interested in dreams following a dream that I had while I was in college. So uh, up until that time, I had had some flying dreams. I'd had uh, the occasional lucid dreams, uh, dreams in which you are aware that you are dreaming. Um, so, but like many um, adolescents, I had sort of a passing interest in dreams just because once in a blue moon, I'd have one that go, I'd go, wow, that was really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, but in college, I had this really long, exceptionally uh, vivid dream also, in which I became aware that I was dreaming. So I knew that I was actually in bed sleeping. But the, the realism was such, for instance, at one point I picked up some snow and I, and I feel the coldness permeating my hand. I'm going, but my real hand is in bed right now. How can I feel coldness when this snow is being created by my mind? And then I threw the snowball at someone, curious at how they'd react. And that person got really upset. And it was a big man. He takes a few steps towards me and tells me that he's going to punch me out. And then for a moment, I forgot I was dreaming and actually got scared. Um, then I ran into other characters, dream characters, and one of which even tried to convince me that the whole thing wasn't a dream, telling me that he also sleeps at night and that he also dreams and that, you know, well, for all, all he knew, maybe I was a character in his dreams. So it was, just, I woke up and I was just, I was hooked. I was like, what was that all about? And how could my brain, you know, immerse me in a world that's so convincing and so complex? Um, and then, so I decided, I started reading a bit more about dreams and about uh, different ways of studying dreams. And at the time, there were also these first studies coming out of uh, some universities in England and at Stanford, showing that people could study lucid dreaming in the sleep laboratory and that it was not only a real environment, a, a real dream that occurs 
uh, in sleep. So these things are have a reality to them. Uh, they're not just stories that people make up, uh, but that lucid dreamers can signal. They can do these eye movements in their sleep that get picked up by electrodes monitoring eye movements. And so they can signal by, for instance, moving their eyes extreme left, right, left, right. Um, and so from their dream, they can signal to the experimenter who's at the sleep lab monitoring them. Hey, by the way, I know I'm at the lab. I know I'm aware that I'm dreaming right now. And I remember that you asked me to perform a task. So I'm going to do that task now and signal that I'm about to start the task, which could be singing, counting, doing squats. And then they can signal when they finish. And so the experimenters now know that between signal two and three, for instance, is when the person was singing or counting, or in one study, even having sex. And then they can look exactly what's going on in the body or in the brain while the person was actually doing this. So anyways, I thought that was pretty mind bending. And it is. When you're in a lab and you have someone who is sleeping and they enter REM sleep, the stage of sleep associated most strongly with vivid dreaming, and then you see these eye movements that stand out from their recordings. And so you know that the person who's sleeping is sending you a message literally from inside their dream. They're saying, hey, hey, I'm here. I know I'm in your lab. Um, it's really quite, uh, quite astonishing and, and remains so to this day. So it all began with the dream. And then I read enough things to let me to think that this was probably something that could be uh, studied. So I took a chance because uh, my plan A at the time was to go to medical school and well, job prospects for a medical doctor versus dream researcher, eh, not quite the same. Right. But in the end, things worked out. So I literally followed my dreams here. Wow. Wow. And so the biggest question that you uncover in chapter seven is why do we dream? And I always thought that our dreams were our wishes or our fears or something from the past, like an unresolved issue, and then something from the present triggers it in your dream. But what would you say? Why do we dream? Well, we, we there's really growing evidence that, uh, first of all, dreams have uh, if you want different forms. So you have certain kinds of dreams as you are falling asleep. Sometimes you see images uh, before you, they can be more thought-like and then they become uh, much more emotionally intense and bizarre and have this narrative structure and they place you in a first person perspective uh, that occurs more in REM sleep and more towards uh, later in the night. And the reason we believe that we have these experiences are tied into uh, what the brain is trying to do as we sleep. And so the brain, you know, sleep serves many functions, but one thing we've discovered over the last 15, 20 years is that sleep plays a crucial role in processing our memories in storing them and figuring out where they go. Um, and so you have to keep in mind that Sleep comes at a very high cost, potentially. You, you're not just relaxing. You are cutting yourself out from the external world. You're very vulnerable when you are sleeping. If you think about our ancestral environment, uh, you're very vulnerable because anything could or anyone could sneak up, uh, kill you, uh, grab you, do whatever. 
And so the question also is, well, why would the brain want to create such a thing where you're cut off? What are the advantages? And now we think that for every two hours you are awake, or at least in humans, you need an hour of sleep. Your brain needs to shut off, close itself from the external world, and focus on inside its own mechanisms to try to figure out, okay, what did we learn today? What were we exposed to? What are our concerns? What are emotionally salient events? And how do I make sense of this information? What have I experienced in the past that I can associate with this? And so your sleeping brain is trying to make sense of this by relating it to past experiences to then better prepare you for the future. And in dreams, you know, dreams don't uh, often contain or very rarely contain actual what we call episodic memories. You know, when, when you dream uh, about an activity, usually it's never exactly as it happened during waking life. There's all kinds of distortions. And so we don't dream, we don't dream about events. We tell stories about those events. And that's what dreams are about. And in REM sleep in particular, um, there's good evidence of what your sleeping brain is doing is that it's taking your current concerns or it's taking emotionally salient events that you've experienced recently. And then it's trying to find weakly associated memories or knowledge that we have in our past to integrate them with. And the reason they're weakly associated is that well, directly associated things are the kinds of thinking we do while we are awake. In dreams, it goes and it searches. And depending on how we react to the dream content, are you scared? Are you happy? What kind of conversations are you having with your dream characters? How are you reacting to this? Your sleeping brain monitors all of this and then decides, is this a useful way of thinking about this problem or not? If it is, it reinforces those connections. And then when you will be awake, and when you encounter a similar situation, uh, hopefully those new connections will help you uh, better react to them or understand them. So it's dreams are a way really of our brain to try and uh, make sense of what we've experienced and to figure out where does it fit in? What does it all mean? And so it's far from a, a trivial undertaking. Uh, it's also why dreams tend to have these very unusual or bizarre features. Like I said, we don't dream of events that have occurred to us directly, but often metaphorically. And dreams are their own language. And again, when you go see uh, a film or you read a novel, there's these overarching themes and these metaphors and figurative speech and so on. And uh, dreams use sort of many of the same tools to tell stories about things that we've experienced or things that uh, preoccupy us. So I know a quote from chapter 12. I actually made a little Kindle graphic about it because I thought it was so powerful that 20% of dream material can be confidently traced to waking life sources. So the only 20% you just talked about where there's so, where's the other 80% coming from? Is it our non-conscious, the collective consciousness? What, it, where, where, what are these weird, bizarre things? Where are they coming from? 
Well, that, that's a good question. Uh, again, the 20% is when we ask participants, you know, to keep track of their dreams for, you know, a per period of time or weeks, whether it's at the lab, in a sleep lab or at home. And then we ask them to, can you identify, you know, life waking sources for your dream content? So people say, oh yeah, there was this yellow Mustang in my dream. But I remember yesterday when I was at the shopping center, I noticed this yellow sports car in the parking lot. And I thought it was really cool or really ugly or what, what have you. And so people are able to make these connections. But indeed, there's the majority of the dream content, about 80%. People have no idea really, you know, why those things were there. And so where it comes from, again, is from these... Uh, associations, these related memories from our past that the dream is exploring in relation to these things that we've had. And because, again, the dreams don't present things directly, so it won't present the yellow car directly as it was in the parking lot, it'll be in another context with other characters, because your brain is busy checking out all kinds of potential associations in our semantic networks, that is, our knowledge of the world, in actual experiences that we have. And also as a function, how are you reacting to the dream, you know, to the people, to these settings? Um, and so, and all this is in constant evolution. And so it's very easy not to see uh, the connections, direct connections. So they're coming, you could call it if you want, your unconscious, but it, it, it's from all these other neural networks that hold all of our experiences, our knowledge, um, and, and our beliefs and our conceptions of the world. So the dream presents, you know, they create, dreams create two things. They create you in the dream, right? You're observing it and you're interacting. And it creates the whole virtual world in which you are immersed in. And this virtual world, we think in part, embodies our current concerns, embodies our view of the world. Uh, but then all of this starts shifting really quickly. Uh, dreams are rarely very stable. I mean, they, they tend to switch, you know, and then like often the story is, you know, oh, and then this happened. And then this person appeared, you know, there's no really always smooth transitions. And the analogy uh, we like to give is like sometimes these conversations you could have at a cocktail party whereby, you know, you start talking, you're a group of five, six, and you're talking about different things. And there's a conversation. Ten minutes later, someone goes, how did we get talking about this? Mm. Now, if you taped it, you would have seen that. Well, Bob said this, and then Marianne in response said this, and that made Peter think of that. And so that's how we got here. So there's just an adjacency principle, but from where you started to where you end, it can, there can be a huge difference. And the same thing goes in dreams because your brain is working on all these associations. Um, you easily move from one thing to our next. We also know that there's this neurotransmitter, uh, noradrenaline, uh, which is very important to keep us focused. It's what, it's sort of the adrenaline, but for the brain. So when you are in a, in, a, in a really tough situation, you want to have razor sharp focus on what's going on. Your senses are on alert. But um, this neurotransmitter decreases a lot in REM sleep. And combined with the fact that our frontal lobes, the areas of our brains that try to are responsible for planning and judgment, 
um, makes that dreams become really shifty. We're more like hyperactive squirrels, you know, with our mind, they're just going everywhere. And so the dream itself shifts. And to the extent that also dreams can be viewed as a form, a really intense form of mind wandering. But when you're just daydreaming during the day or you're taking public transport and you're just letting yourself go, your thoughts naturally jump from one thing to another. You're rarely just immersed in one linear way of thinking. And the brain regions that are activated when you're doing this mind wandering, when you're relaxed and just um, daydreaming, are the same ones that get activated in REM sleep. And so the idea that dreams aren't these long linear things, but that they are bizarre, that they have these scene shifts and so on, uh, are completely in line with what we know about daydreaming. And it's just really, in many respects, neurologically speaking anyways, a really intensified form of daydreaming and one that is for many people much more vivid and immersive and compelling. This is getting more and more interesting as we dive deep into this. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for this. Tony, when we were talking about two of my dreams before we did this um, call today, and we found that there was a theme for me that kind of shows up in a lot of my dreams with flowing water. And you mentioned yes. that water can be a metaphor for emotions. And then you were able to ask me some questions and we pretty quickly pinpointed the situation. But what other metaphors like water are common for dreams? And then you also talk about dream characters before. Why are dream characters, who are the people that pop in and out and why are they important? Okay, uh, I'll start maybe with the first part of your question when we are talking about uh, water and metaphors. Uh, there are many common themes that creep up across people's dreams. So be chase and pursuit, uh, you know, losing your teeth. So, so I'll take losing your teeth, for example, which is uh, what we call a typical dream. That is many people have had at least once in their life. And so the kinds of questions you can ask yourself uh, about this, about possible metaphors are, uh, or exam dreams. Here, here's an even better example. Many people, and I'm part of them, have these really, yes, have these really anxious anxiety dreams where we're either not ready for an exam uh, or we have one coming up and we weren't, uh, we weren't told about it. I, in my version, I have someone who shows up at my office, a government official, and they tell me that according to their records, I uh, never took this final exam back in college or in high school, depends on the dream, uh, that has to do with either physics or math, and that I have to take this exam tomorrow morning. And that if I don't pass it, all the studies that I've done since then uh, will be erased because they're not valid because, you know, and I tell them, well, you know, that, that was like 30 years ago. I can't, you know, just tomorrow morning, you got to give me anyways. Okay. It, so th these kinds of dreams are, are quite common, but if people stop and examine what's going on in their lives when they have this dream, uh, most will realize that they occur in periods of either self-doubt or that you have an important presentation uh, or that you're worried about how you're going to appear to others. And this could be a 
romantic situation. It can be with respect to colleagues, employers. You might have a feeling of the imposter syndrome that, oh boy, these people think that I'm really good at this or I know this, but I really don't. And so the exam dream is a great metaphor for these kinds of concerns. Same thing, some people uh, can report dreams, for instance, where they're driving a vehicle and it's going out of control and they tumble down a cliff again. Um, very good metaphor for, you know, do you feel you're in control? Are you in the driver's seat? What elements of your life maybe are spiraling out or you would like to rein in? And so again, we don't depict these concerns directly. We tell stories about them. Um, and so many of these themes um, or these elements we find in dreams, if you start thinking about them in that way, uh, really helps you maybe better understand why you are having them uh, and what they might mean for you. So a good step is often to take a step back and try to think, okay, why am I having this now? When is the last time I had this dream as well? As for the dream characters, that is probably the aspect of dreams that has always fascinated me the most. So I mentioned that the, the dream uh, that I had in college and that one dream character tried to convince me that my experience wasn't a dream. And the thing about dream characters is that usually um, they're really quite surprising in the sense that we do not know what they're going to say or do next. Um, and But if you think that these characters in your dreams are being created by your dreaming mind, uh, but yet you don't know what they're going to say next. When, when you meet Peter in your dream and Peter says, oh, I'm disappointed with your work performance. And you go, oh, no, it wasn't my task. And But you don't know what they're going to say next. But you're creating this character. So in a very real way, you're surprising yourself. And so to me, it's always been fascinating that some characters in our dreams um, appear to us as if they have their own emotions, right? The, the person uh, rejects us, is angry at us, is wants to chase us, is uh, uh, falling in love with us. So we see these emotions, they have facial expressions, they're looking at us with a, with a, uh, a gaze that makes us feel like we are being looked at, like these are real people and they seem to have their own intentions, right? Their own desires, they go about their own business. And, uh, and so how the brain sort of keeps track or creates you, but keeps all this other information about what's in the minds of the others hidden from you, uh, to me is really, um, fascinating. And these conversations you can have with dream characters um, are also really interesting because uh, many, for instance, people who have lucid dreams, dreams in which you are aware that you're dreaming, sometimes novice ones will tell characters like I did, hey, by the way, you're not real, right? And most dream characters will not take either kindly to this or they'll just dismiss it going, well, what are you talking about? Or they'll get upset. But a much more interesting question to ask dream characters are, who are you? Or who am I? What is the most important thing I should know about you, about myself, about what awaits us? And while some dream characters really seem two-dimensional and might answer with some gibberish, some appear to take these questions really seriously 
And they offer us answers that are both insightful and creative. And so it's a very interesting way of learning more about ourselves because, again, we are questioning ourselves, right? These characters are being created by our minds. And so we're interacting with ourselves and surprising ourselves because we don't know what, what they're going to say next, just like we don't know what the dream will do next. Uh, and so these dynamics of, uh, you know, of these characters having, again, uh, their own emotions, their own ways of acting and of being is, to me, one of the particularly fascinating things about dreams that are often overlooked. I never thought about thinking ahead of time and asking characters questions. Do you think that that we could make that happen in a dream? How do you... Because how do you control? Well, well for, for that, there are, um, for instance, people who have lucid dreams, which is a learnable skill to become aware that you are dreaming. And then you have a certain control, at least over your own actions and what questions to ask or what you're going to do. Uh, and then you can observe how these questions or your actions influence the dream and then how you react to them. Uh, but again, even in lucid dreams, even when you know that you're dreaming and you know that you're in bed sleeping and that the person in front of you is an invention of your mind, you still don't know what they're going to say or do next, right? And so there's really a limit to this knowledge. But yes, you can train yourself to ask these questions. And some lucid dreamers even ask these questions not to the specific characters, but to the dream itself. They'll like look up at the dream at the sky, wherever they are and say, show me something that I need to learn. Show me something cool. Um, tell me more about myself. And often there'll be transformations in the dream environment in relation to that. And so to the extent that you pay attention to what is happening in your dream, how is the dream evolving or how are these dream characters responding to you, you're really getting a glimpse of how your brain is talking to you, how you are talking to yourself, because all of this is coming from your mind. And so this interaction is really often uh, overlooked and I think uh, underused. It's really quite a fascinating process uh, to which we don't have access when we are awake. This is beyond fascinating, Tony. I, I can't even tell you how much I'm learning from this. And when we were talking first, and I was diving deep into understanding my dreams better, you mentioned art appreciation classes, which to me was like yeah. way out there. I, I don't even go to the museum, you know. So I, when we hung up that call, I just thought, well, how could art appreciation help me? But then I you know, finished reading your book and you mentioned Santiago Ramon y Cajal, that Spanish histologist anatomist that won that Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine uh, for his discovery about nerve cells. And he wrote that book, The Beautiful Brain. And I watched it on YouTube and these drawings are beautiful and fascinating. And they tied in to me, the neuroscience to what you were talking about. But can you explain why you suggested art appreciation for yeah. a strategy for dream exploration? Well, the, the parallel is that, um, again, if people 
try to appreciate any form of art, whether it's a play, uh, whether it's a sculpture, a painting, or even as a, a novel, uh, one thing that you learn is that there's not one, just one way to appreciate art. There are many ways, and that art speaks to each one of us a bit differently. And art um, doesn't show us what is, it explores possibilities. It says, well, here's this moral dilemma, and here's what could happen if, and here's this representation of this that might elicit these feelings uh, in you when you're looking at a painting or what have you. And so the idea is to cultivate, I believe, the same kind of attitude towards our dreams, that dreams, again, are uh, very similar to art. And we are the artists. We are the creators of these dreams. And if we want to better understand maybe what they mean for us or to better appreciate them, uh, maybe, again, moving away from this idea that people outside of us know exactly what it means, even if they know nothing about us, uh, is probably not the best uh, way to move forth, but to approach your dream as if it was a an artistic production and say, well, it probably holds many potential meanings. Can I explore it in a way that it will bring me better uh, knowledge about myself or will allow it to discover something new about myself? Uh, is really probably a much better way of going about it. And again, to come back to art appreciation, um, you know, one art piece will mean different things to different people. And the same thing goes uh, with dreams. And so the other thing about people, when people ask others, what does this dream mean? If you ask 10 people, even so-called dream experts, and you ask 10 what it dreams, you'll probably get 10 different answers. And so which one is right? How do you know? And so you only ask one, and then you're happy with it because it makes sense of your experience. Uh, but to think that that is an absolute truth, it's like if someone said, oh, this sculpture of the thinker, it means this. Well, you'd say, well, maybe it means that to you. <laughs> but to me, when I look at it, here's other things that come to mind. And so dreams, it's a bit similar. So it's, it's to have people maybe view dreams a bit more in a, a bit more malleable, flexible way uh, and approach, approach it from different angles. The other thing about dreams that sometimes people to figure out what it all means, the entire dream. But sometimes we can learn quite a bit about ourselves or what's going through our minds or in our lives uh, by uh, focusing or learning a bit more about part of the dream, right? The emotions in it, a salient interaction or a character or a scene, and figuring out or getting a sense that you've better understood even part of the dream can be just as useful as the the whole thing, which might have a whole bunch of parts that sort of don't necessarily mesh well together. This is opening my eyes to a whole new world, Tony. And I've got to tell you that since we've been speaking and I've been reading your book and trying to apply this, not just to dreams, it's actually got me looking at the whole world in a different way. And I'll give you an example with something that we have a mutual passion of hiking. Um, so you've hiked the Grand Canyon and you know, you're, you bring your son hiking and you know, it's a daily thing for me. I get up and it's dark out and I'm hiking just to have that, that mental health component of the day. 
And the other day I saw this rock and the moonlight was shining on the rock in such a weird way that there was a shadow that kind of lit it up and I could see the shadow in front of the rock, not behind it. But I just stopped and, and looked at the rock and I thought maybe this is what Tony means about art appreciation. So I'm starting to try to apply what should, how should I be taking these new concepts, look at the world, see things new and a new light and how, how could I use this? So it's, it is making me see things in a different way. And well, I, I'm glad to hear that. And at the end of the day, you know, I think the question that people uh, can ask themselves is, you know, is this useful to me? Have I learned something new? Am I looking at things differently? And if the answer is yes, then it's been a good exercise because you're moving forth, you're discovering things about the world around you or how you conceive it or about yourself or your place in it. And it's a microcosm of what goes on uh, or can be inferred for uh, from your own dreams. Which is powerful. Self-awareness is probably the most important skill that we can have. So I, I love how this is where it's brought me. When I first was trying to uncover my friend Kate's question, I had no idea it was going to get me to uncover my own dreams that <laughs> I was going way off track with. So this has been so helpful. I just want to ask you one final question. In your epilogue, you talk about the future of dreaming. And, you know, we're all tapped into these devices. Like I'm tied to my watch because I track my exercise like, in, like a crazy person. But what do you think uh, the future will hold for us for our dreams? Do you think we're ever going to have solid answers that neuroscience can answer to help us to better understand some of the questions that come up with our dreams with these devices? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, and so I'll, I think there are some questions that neuroscience will be able to answer in a fairly quick future. So how does the brain create dream images? Where are they stored? Where do they come from? Uh, but there's questions for which we have really very little clue even for wakefulness. So what are the neurological underpinnings of consciousness, waking consciousness? And we still don't know that. Um, if I ask you, Andrea, uh, think of, you don't have to tell me, but think of an event that happened to you yesterday. Do you have that in mind? Yeah. Okay. Well, no one knows how you did that. No one knows how your brain went through your souvenirs of yesterday, how it settled on this one, how it brought back to your memory. And we still don't know something as seemingly trivial as that. And so the problems then with respect to dreams are only magnified. We don't know how the brain creates these sensations, how, um, again, how our thinking memories get activated. That being so, so I think there's different levels of questions and some were probably um, fairly a ways off, but there is certainly an appetite um, for technologies or medications, for instance, that could potentially induce lucid dreaming reliably. Uh, but there's also some concerns. Lucid dreaming isn't for everyone. Uh, it's often made out to be much easier than it is and maybe not as harmless as it might sound. 
uh, some people experience what are called lucid nightmares, um, nightmares in which you're aware that you're dreaming, but you can't control anything. And to make it worse, you're unable to wake up. Uh, and so you're immersed in these horrific scenes uh, for long periods of time. Um, and so there's these kinds of dangers. Uh, there's also a big appetite for any technology that would be able to record our dreams. And so uh, in our book, we mentioned this fascinating research out of uh, a university in Kyoto in Japan, where researchers are uh, putting together these algorithms that at least give us a broad outline of what maybe was going on in the dream. So uh, there were two characters. One of them was probably an older woman. One of them was a younger boy. Um, and so they're able to do that. And when you ask people, well, if we could record your dreams, would you want to? And most people immediately go, oh, of course. But then you should ask yourself other questions. So who has access to these recordings? And because you're probably going to be using that technology, you mentioned before tracking your, your uh, physical activity and so on. But the algorithms that allow you to do that in a smartwatch or other, other uh, tech uh, is often proprietary algorithms. They belong to the company. They're not yours. They have access to your data. So who do you want to have access to your dreams? And, uh, you know, the next time you open up your browser, would you want to have an ad based on what you dreamt the night before? Right. Uh, would you want a spouse or whatever asking you, who is this Peter guy that was in your dreams last night? You know, right? And so... Then you start thinking about these issues and, and privacy issues. And if we think about uh, now looking back, you know, people are alarmed about, you know, how uh, online tech companies keep our data, steal our data, share our data, what have you. Well, what about something as personal and intimate as dreams? What about the dreams that got recorded, but you don't remember them in the morning? right? But they're recorded somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so those are the kinds of also, I think, questions uh, that we should be uh, thinking about and having answers for before the technology uh, comes, if and when it'll come. And then there's either other questions even further down, you know, to the extent that we know the human brain is capable of dreaming. Could one day artificial intelligence, these very complicated uh, processing units that we are building and improving. Could dreaming abilities arise out of this? And if we have technologies, before I was mentioning about having uh, meds or technologies that might induce lucid dreams or flying dreams or what have you, uh, is there a danger that people become addicted to this? People who have harsh lives or boring lives or difficult situ real life situations, could they want to find refuge in their dreams and remain there. And I, I'm reminded, I don't know if you're familiar with the a novel Ready Player One, uh, but people become immersed in this parallel virtual world, which is a gaming world. Well, dreams could be very much like that as well. So there's um, potential dangers or at least social considerations that I think that are uh, definitely merit our attention uh, before these issues really arise so that we're being a bit proactive and not reacting to these things, uh, in many cases, potentially before it's too late. 
This has been so eye-opening. I want to thank you so much for your time today, Tony, for sharing your insights on the power of understanding how our brains dream. If anyone wants to purchase your book, it is now on Amazon. Is that the best place to? Uh, anywhere, really. It's available at Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble, really wherever uh, books are sold, either in uh, hard copy, there's an audio version, uh, Kindle, electronic versions. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and people can find you at Dr. Z dreams on Twitter and your website yeah. AntonioZadra.com. Uh, yes. So the, the, uh, the website has an English and French version. Oh, I must have arrives. On, yeah. probably clicked on your French version, but I found <laughs> uh, you've got quite a lot of media posted on there. So people can go and look at some of your other interviews you've done. Um, if you have any last final thoughts for people to take away on our brains and dreaming. Um, maybe one final thought is that for, you know, we're talking about art and characters and dreams and so on, but, um, you know, dreams also have this really playful, potentially side to them and this imaginative side. And so I, I was just going to say, if other than the science of dreams, people are more interested in reading about the far-sided dreams, the inventive fictional side. Um, there's also a novel that plays around with these ideas called A Dream Keepers, uh, which is sort of a mystery suspense, but all built around a dream. So that takes you towards a, a whole other different path about what if these things existed in dreams and these hidden worlds and powers. And so uh, that might be interest, of interest to maybe uh, some of your listeners. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I've got a lot to think about. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 